the USL show, also known as The View for Soccer. I gave a very pro wrestling heel turn, I'm sorry you were offended apology. The US military discussing what a Naruto run is for the Area 51 raid. I feel angry. Welcome to the USL show. Uh, this is Phil. Welcome, everybody. And uh, Liam O'Connell is with me now. He is the Senior Director of Youth Development for the USL. And uh, Liam, you had a pretty big announcement the other day, right? Yeah, yeah. It was an exciting week for sure. A lot of, lot of buildup and, and planning led, led to what we got to announce this week. Yeah, and, and a lot of it ended up being more specifics of something we've been hoping would be coming anyway. And and it comes on the heels of another crazy, uh, more crazy announcement in that the uh, USSDA, the Development Academy, has, been, has shuttered its doors. Um, of course, I think the obvious first question in comparison to that is, is this, did you guys move your time up, be, timeline up just because of that? Or was this always kind of in plans for uh, February 21st? It's really interesting, Phil. Obviously, that's uh, we, we've been getting that question a lot. Um, I'll be totally candid. As you know, we announced this player development model and the concept of this different uh, model for our academy league last August, coming off of uh, approval in, at our mid-year meetings, board of governors meetings. Mm-hmm. And so this, uh, frankly, we, we've been slowly working through the, the process of rolling out this next phase for quite some time. Like that animated video you saw, we've actually we produced that back in the fall. Mm. You know, so we've been actually rolling it out privately to all of our clubs at our Academy Cup events and all the technical leaders for months now. And in and, and the off-season, at our winter meetings, we have a player development subcommittee that helped establish the, the minimum standards that, we're gonna, that, that ultimately are going to be the structure behind how these clubs operate these pro- programs and create these training environments. So uh, we actually had plans mid-spring after the the, the, the uh, the Eastern Conference Academy Cup event we hosted in February to release these standards and really everything you saw rolled out this week. Um, obviously, we kind of put those plans on hold initially because of COVID, mm-hmm. because it, it led to us unfortunately canceling the first ever Academy Cup national event. And we were already expecting 54 teams and 34 clubs across every level from League Two all the way to MLS represented at that event. So uh, a little bit of a shell shock there, after especially all the work putting into it. And then, honestly, when the when the DA fallout, if you will, happened, uh, we've just been inundated with with youth clubs, pro clubs, amateur clubs all over the map, reaching out to us, just asking like, "Is USL going to step into this space? Are you guys going to replicate what the DA had?" And so we kind of discussed it as a leadership team and said, uh, "I think now is the time to to continue that plan of the rollout, less in reaction to the DA, more just." to be clear again about our intent mm. and to make it known that we're actually just continuing to move on with the plan we already felt very confident of because I guess the last thing I'll say is if you think about it, like we were ready to present that plan and move forward with it if the DA was going to still be a thing, if MLS is going to break off from the DA and doing their, do their own thing mm. or some combination of the two like you see today. Yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, the, the plans haven't changed. The announcement may have been the only thing to kind of give people confidence, which... Uh, I enjoy this conversation this time of uh, of our of our human development here. Um, 
I do want to say, is it, um, I, I imagine this has been pushed in some ways. First of all, it's a necessary move, and we'll talk about that a little later. But I imagine this has also been pushed in some ways because there have been rumors about losing the DA anyway. And so I imagine you guys have always had your sights mm -hmm. on filling that space to some degree all along, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and here's what I'll say. Like, the, a lot of people have been ragging on the DA and especially the way in which it fell apart. Like, I'll be clear, like, if you never, if you have never worked in the DA environment or been in a community that did get DA, like, the reality is, like, it did a lot over the past 13 years of the game. Mm -hmm. It set a higher bar for standards. It provided a platform for MLS clubs to now become effectively the leaders in, in youth pre-professional youth development in this country. And there are a lot of MLS clubs doing phenomenal things. Same with a lot of USL clubs, like the San Antonio, St. Louis, and North Carolina's of the world that also use DA as a platform. But here's the thing, is, like, you could tell it had kind of run its course so towards the last few years of the DA, you had the professional clubs who really wanted to have a model that fit the idea of long-term player development, moving a kid from youth to pro. Mm. And you had, and so it didn't quite fit them. And that's why you heard all these rumors of MLS breaking off. And then you had a lot of youth clubs that also um, didn't quite fit that same model, you know? And that's where the, I think the tiered thing last year didn't, didn't go so well. But I think regardless of all that, we got to be honest with ourselves, Phil, like, there were entire states, some now that have multiple professional USL clubs and some really uh, forward-thinking clubs that never had DA. Alabama, New Mexico, the El Paso area, the whole state of Nevada, West, uh, huge portions of the, of, of the Midwest. Like, when I worked at, at Sporting Kansas City, Sporting KC's DA program the only one within an eight-hour radius any direction except mm. for St. Louis, which was four hours away. The reality is, like, we're a huge rural spread out country, and and we need we, we thought about it, and we needed to find a model that fit these small to mid-range communities as well as the the major metropolitan areas because there are good players everywhere in this country, and we need to we need to embrace that. Yeah, I, I read that there's 129 academy teams that I, I imagine that number was meant to, to be to be slotted for this year's competition and maybe more to come, or is that just 129 teams in the USL program as pro or semi-pro? Yeah, so let's let's just uh, for simplicity's sake, let's 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 go with senior team, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we really want to talk about like the philosophy of a long-term play development program that's about having a youth pathway to senior team soccer, right? Because effectively, obviously, like, yes, we have two two of those platforms are pro three if you include MLS with championship and league league one. League two is effectively a senior team platform as well. So look at clubs like Boston Bolts, Western FC out of Miami, the Miami area, or. FC United out of Chicago, all all incredibly important soccer markets mm -hmm. to our landscape, all top, top youth clubs that have actually been arguably developing more pros in their market than the MLS clubs have because they've been around longer in those markets, and they all have League Two, and they treat their League Two as a senior team within their own club. Yeah. So it's a U23 platform, not just for the kids who have left, have aged out of U19 or in college, but they also promote their top youngsters in the high school age ranges. So it's philosophically the same idea as a pre-professional program and League Two exists to be that path to pro, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, the, the 129 is, is we currently today have 129 senior team clubs within the USL ecosystem. That includes um, the MLS2 programs right now. Um, but candidly, as, as you may have seen in Jake's interview with Taylor Twelman, that number will be rising greatly. So we feel very confident. 
Yeah, so that's what I was getting at, is that we have a lot of potential here to grow, and I do find that League 2 thing very interesting. It's not something I'm super close with, but I do know even in St. Louis, um, even down to the amateur leagues, you know, there, there's potential to be to be found there and moved up to League 2 and, and moved up to other lo- levels. And especially here, outside of even Scott Gallagher, or St. Louis FC's DA program, uh, there are a lot of kids falling through the cracks, which is just insane. Like you said, we're a big spread out country, uh, but the USL has a chance to bring in a lot of markets that are not being looked at right now. And uh, I'm excited about that League Two thing. Are you? Is there any worry about the level of play and, and the differences between um, you know the League Two academies? I imagine they have a long way to go to catch up with someone like San Antonio and St. Louis FC, but um, it, it could still definitely I mean, work or develop. I, I, I think you're selling them short. I'll be quite clear. I am. I am biased. I am biased. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, but that's not fair because, like, let's be clear: like San Antonio is a better academy program than some MLS clubs. Mm-hmm. So again, like you, you got to understand, like just because you have a higher senior team level does not mean that you're better or worse at developing young players. You can hire a coach at the professional level that knows how to win senior team soccer games, but doesn't know how to develop and bring through young players. Yeah, sure. And that's across the world. And so even look at like the model we're eventually trying to replicate is like what you see in England, where there's, I mean, there's multiple categories of academy levels. It's not just based on a promotion or relegation based on your wins and losses and performance and effectively a youth competition. It's also based on a higher level of standards and your production rate of producing pro players. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll be frank, like, watch, people are going to be sleeping on, for example, a lot of League One clubs. I'll throw, I'll throw one out there for you. Tormenta FC, mm-hmm. South Georgia, Statesboro. <laughs> this is a community that everyone in the country, if you're talking elite football, would be overlooking and probably has been for decades. I'm telling you, they're doing some special things. They're embracing the idea of, of player development within their own community, and you're going to see them producing players potentially even at a better rate than some pro, pro clubs in Division Two and Division One because they have a philosophy of, of truly giving these young kids opportunities, and they have a coaching staff and an ownership group that's willing to take risks on young players, which is a really, really important part about actually long-term player development. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that happens. To be honest, um, you know, I'm a big proponent for the the Open Cup, and this brings a little bit of that feeling of you know some mm-hmm. of these smaller clubs having a chip on their shoulders and feeling like they can prove themselves. I love that. I, I think that's really exciting. I think that's one of the cooler things about these uh, competitions you're about I'm to bring in. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm a geek about that. Like when we had our Academy Cup events, that was one of the coolest things. Yeah. You saw, you saw these club these youth representatives of these clubs wearing their senior team jerseys competing against each other in ways where literally they may never at the senior team level it was it was special man and you could tell it was cool for the players and the coaches as well yeah were there any in in that competition i know it didn't get anywhere near as far as where it was supposed to i think um but were there any surprises that you remember from that competition about teams that kind of oh my uh, god yeah sorry go ahead yeah yeah without a doubt and again like a lot of the times there was these like communities and these clubs that have not been on the map with mm-hmm. U.S. soccer and MLS. So, like, uh, I'm, 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 the ones that, honestly, uh, probably were the biggest surprises in the Western Conference event in October, Union Omaha, which fielded a, which fielded a U-17 team before mm-hmm. they've even kicked a ball in pro soccer. <laughs> they had their pro coach coaching the team. I love they, it. they had 15 different high schools represented across their 18 players. So you talk about breaking down barriers, right, and giving kids opportunities. They fully funded the whole experience. Um, and, and they had a nice, they had a great little squad and you could tell they're these kids who are just like, they had this feeling like 
without this, we, we didn't feel like we would have ever gotten out of Nebraska mm. or would have ever gotten an opportunity to be seen at a higher level. And same thing with, uh, we had a club out of San Francisco, the Glens League Two, which by the way, also has good soccer people tied to the club, like Mike McNeil, their executive director, and Jimmy Conrad, their technical director. They, all, they don't just work with their League Two senior team platform. They work with the whole club. And they had, a, they, had a, they, had a, they had an 04 player, so a U16 come out to that event. He killed it as one of the youngest players. This was suddenly on the youth national team um, radar. Hmm. Got selected by Alianza to go to Spain and scored a banger again in the La Liga friendly. And now just signed and was prepared to sign a contract to be with their League Two team this summer as a 15, 16 year old. Hmm. And then you look at the, the Eastern Conference event, same thing. Two of the biggest surprises Tormenta, which was, you know, small league one market, and Louisville. Louisville, this is Louisville's first ever time forming a youth team. They found kids that were two hours outside Louisville in rural Kentucky, never having access to quote unquote ECNL or DA or an MLS Academy. They killed it in that event. I'm telling you, mm-hmm. this one kid in particular had two Golasso free kicks. And by the end of the weekend, there was a couple of MLS scouts at the event calling up Louisville interested in those players so again like it's obvious that these clubs can help mine talent and provide opportunities to kids that frankly probably never had it yeah it's a it's a surprise in some ways that louisville is doing something like that but also perhaps not because uh those guys from top to bottom seem to be doing well and they seemed super excited about this they've made a bunch of hires um you know oh yeah they have an incredible staff and ownership group that believes in it and that's the right yeah yeah um but we're going to see them competing against everyone in their region. I wanted to talk about the the importance of having a regional competition like this and filling in the gaps, but also yeah. travel costs and operating a club. Mm-hmm. Louisville's putting a lot of resources in. Not everyone will be able to do quite that much, but um, this is a good mm-hmm. start for that, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's what that, you just hit the nail on the head, and that's, that's the beautiful part about our model, in my opinion, is it's flexibility. So... The core of it is, yes, you have to have this, like, one, like, super youth team, right? This reserve team model of the best high school age talents in the market. Taking the best young players that you've 14, 15, 16, 17, and putting them with, with um, older players that are still looking to make that jump to pro, right? Um, the best part, too, is, like, that youth network component. So we're requiring all clubs to field an academy league team. One of the standards is you have to have what we call a league-approved youth network. You can, you can accomplish that in a number of ways based on what you have in terms, like you said, resources as a club. So Louisville and Charlotte and North Carolina this coming year, they'll have a full-blown ECNL program that eventually will feed into this academy team. Mm. Whereas San Antonio and Phoenix are very likely going to choose this new MLS Academy League option, whatever that ends up looking like, um, to be their uh, feeder into this academy league team. And then you're going to see uh, Omaha, since they're the only pro club in Nebraska, they're setting up a partnership with the Nebraska State Association where ODP and state and, and clubs within that umbrella can recommend the players um, that they find around the state for these opportunities in Academy Cup or Academy League. So if you think about it, like all those are different opportunities and you look at the Omaha one without having to spend a ton of money and, and time and staff and, and infrastructure, like basically creating a competing club to the rest of the, the community they're just working alongside existing youth organizations. Mm-hmm. So, and that's because, like, I can tell you, having worked in a, in a lot of soccer environments all over the country, there's no cookie cutter approach. Otherwise, we'd be meeting our soccer potential as a country right now. Yeah. Frankly, you it, know. 
Yeah, and that was one of the the negatives of the USSDA that you mentioned is that it got real stringent, maybe too stringent at times. And so I like this flexibility option. You mentioned a lot of important things there. I was going to ask if this will um, be exclusive or if teams will be playing in multiple leagues at the same time. It sounds like you're very much open to or expecting the possibility that people are in an MLS league or an ECNL league as well as the USL league. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. And U.S. youth soccer, U.S. club soccer, mm-hmm. like, um, so think about it this way too. It's like play development, especially at that high school age range for young men, is very nonlinear. There's so many factors from puberty to growth spurts to things that happen in their personal or family life that can greatly change the trajectory of young players' development at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's accelerated. Sometimes their trajectory goes downwards. And so you need to be able to have the flexibility to move players at that age up and down and, and to test them in, in higher levels, get them out of their comfort zone, and then realize if it's a little too far out, drop them back down a level and build their confidence back up. So as an example, we, we're going to create these three registration statuses that exist. This is going to be the core to how players move up and down the system, okay? Mm-hmm. So you got to imagine, like, a kid will start in, they can, in their grassroots environment, and right now it's traditionally that you go from rec soccer to competitive soccer. Right, and so same sort of pathway, but now we're adding a layer. We're gonna have what we call uh, these part-time registration statuses. So the first one is part-time youth. Our clubs can actually have an unlimited pool of what we call these part-time youth players. This allows a kid to come to start to just like dip their toe and, and get a taste of what the, this academy environment looks like, especially the young players, the best like you know 15-year-old in the market. Bring them into this environment, have them play with these older players, some, some of which may already be playing in the professional environment, mm-hmm. see how they are in that. And then, again, they're part-time youth, so they can still play with their local youth team in any of these youth leagues and platforms we just mentioned. They can still play high school soccer, if that's important to them and their community. Um, it's, it, we, want, we want to put those decisions back on the player, because it's ultimately their career. It shouldn't be their, in, in what, where they want to play and and what short-term sacrifices they want to make for their long-term dreams of playing pro soccer should be the kid's decision to make. Not us as a governing body, not, 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 not us as directors or clubs. And so um, I think that's going to be a really powerful statement and one that players will and families will also really appreciate. And then the cool thing is from there, you have your full-time academy spot. So those are the kids that train in this environment three to four times a week in this reserve team environment. They're with these pro staffs, pro facilities on a regular basis, fully two. Um, and then you have what we call part-time pro. So that's, that's what those kids are aspiring to do. These are the kids who, are, as teenagers, are signing professional or amateur contracts in USL. Mm. So, again, it's like that kid on hell from San Francisco Glens who would have played League Two this summer. It's like Brandon Cervania's brother, Jaden, who's now on an, an amateur contract with Birmingham Legion as a 17-year-old. Mm. Um, it's like Francis Jacobs, the youngest American pro in the history of the game, as a 14-year-old playing pro for Orange County. So think about that. Like, Orange County has four teenagers. Or at that end of last season, that for sure had at least four teenagers on pro deals. All those players can now play in this environment. And now the best youngsters in the, in the rest of the community not, now have this experience where they can train and play with guys who are already at the pro environment. And so you have this awesome stepping stone from the different levels of grassroots youth football to part-time youth full-time academy to part-time pro to full-time pro and you can clearly see the progression that exists there for mm-hmm. a player and we understand that sometimes we'll go up sometimes we'll drop down it's fluid 
Yep. And that leads me right into my next uh, topic is, you know, two of my favorite San, my two of my favorite teams are San Antonio and OC, which you've mentioned plenty on this uh, show for obvious mm-hmm. reasons for uh, their, their work with the youth. I love that they've totally bought into that pathway of, of selling players on. And from bottom to top, this is only going to make that better and solidify it, um, especially over the next five years, uh, as you've talked about your five-year plan, which we'll, we'll kind of close on. But it's been mentioned that Jake Edwards, you know, he's, been, he's mentioned solidarity payments and training compensation. That seems pretty vital to this situation. You mentioned the League Two player even if he was to be bought by someone like OC, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he's not on a pro deal. Is that something within your own league that you guys are considering throwing in there? Um, is it not necessary for the top teams because they'll just sign him pro at 15, like Leo Torres? Or how do you see that affecting the landscape in the future? It's interesting. It's, uh, it's frankly uncharted territory for American soccer, right? Yeah. Um, up until a year ago, uh, certain organizations and individuals that had the power to make it a bigger thing wanted to pretend that it what couldn't exist in this country. Hmm. MLS clearly changed that position last year in a big way hmm. with their public statement about wanting to participate in international um, RSTP, regula- regulation standard uh, sale and transfer of players. So that only governs, though, international transfers. So what MLS was talking about last year is if a player leaves for a European club or, an, or another club, then they can claim train count. Mm-hmm. Domestic training compensation is something that has to be set set within our own walls. So that's why when Orange County uh, uh, signed Brian Ko from DC, even though he had already been playing on an academy contract for Loudon, or Diego Lopez from Atlanta, like those two MLS clubs could have gotten training compensation. Mm-hmm. And you argue, I argue they should. They invested a lot in those kids' development and gave them a platform to gain that exposure. So. For me, I think now's the time to do this. It's something we want to go to the table with MLS to discuss. We're open to U.S. soccer being a part of that dialogue as well if they want to be. But if not, then we'll take the route of, again, like the EPL and ESL, and we'll set up a third-party um, uh, uh, process so that if there is a claim or dispute for training comp, there's a, there's a, there's a you know, set in stone process to, to go about claiming that. Because mm-hmm. um, on one hand, like the reality is like MLS clubs are – have been investing a ton in youth development. There's a lot of really talented young players who will become serviceable pros at all levels of the game that are going to be coming out of MLS academies in the next few years, like like a conveyor belt. And so the reality is a lot of those players won't make their MLS senior teams. A lot of them will end up in USL. And so there's already an incentive for MLS clubs to want, I would think, to want to potentially get compensated for developing those players. And on our side, yes. Louisville, San Antonio, all and, and a lot of other clubs that are not yet in your mind if you think about youth development, mm-hmm. they're ready to actually fully fund and really invest in youth development and long-term player development, but they do want some sort of protection over that investment, whether that's something like a first right to sign a certain player or, like you said, some version of training compensation or solidarity payments. Um, and I do think that we can move in that direction, um, but we have to we have to be willing to collaborate and I think think more about the bigger picture of the game, not just your league versus my league, you know? And it sounds like U.S. soccer has to collaborate as well to a certain extent. Perhaps perhaps there's options after that, it sounds like, huh? It would, it would help, but what I would, this, and this is what I would say, like, I think 
we in youth soccer and MLS can all agree on one big thing. We want our national team programs to be successful. Mm-hmm. We want our men's and national teams to be competitive at the global stage on a consistent basis. That's what I'm talking about, about meeting our potential as a, as a soccer nation, right? And so we can all agree on one thing. To, to achieve that long-term goal, the more players in more communities, in pre-professional environments, in professional environments, at younger ages, the better off we're going to be. The wider player pool of elite talent we will have, the more stones will be left unturned, the more, the more, or will be turned over, and the more kids will just be given opportunities. So, again, if training conference law dating is going to encourage a bunch of owners of professional clubs to invest in this space, I would argue that it's going to help us towards those goals. And so why not try to pursue that? I'm sold, Liam. You got me, but I don't work for U.S. <laughs> soccer, unfortunately. Um, I love it. Um, let's let's finish with this one. Uh, you've been quoted as saying uh, this is 18 months into a five-year plan. Can you tell us about the five-year plan and then kind of finish up with uh, what is success in five years? What will that look like? Great question, man. Um, so the, the five-year plan really started uh, with... Uh, launching the USL Academy platform about uh, early 2019, um, obviously announcing the Academy Cup, um, which we were very clear. You can read the original press releases. We were very clear the goal was to eventually transition that to a year-round league model so our clubs have an opportunity to invest in this space. We could truly create a pathway, not just a showcase platform. Um, we announced the model. Uh, we, we went through our first event series, which took us just about to that one-year mark when we concluded that, that regional event. And obviously, like, we're literally just about to announce on the field of teams for the national event when we had to cancel it all together because of COVID. Um, So a little little twist in the plan there. And then we always had the intention that at some point in 2021, uh, we were going to be launching the first season of the Academy League. Um, So effectively, like, once we've right when we were entering year three. It wasn't until recently and through a lot of dialogue with our clubs that we we really decided we wanted to separate this from just another youth league and say this is – the, the pre-professional reserve team league, which is why we aligned it with the pro calendar. And it also, it almost fit better than the five-year plan because now that five-year cycle from when we launched it to that end point will be the end of 2023. That will also be when we will have concluded three, the first three full seasons of the USL Academy League. So I'll be candid, like there will be certain parts of the country where we will not be able to launch regional subdivisions next year mm-hmm. because we just don't have the critical mass yet. And to your point, travel demand and being cost effective um, is, is are two of our biggest components of getting this right, especially in today's um, world. So the, the, to your last question, kind of like what are we? What are the um, what are the goals? What are how are we measuring success over this five year plan? Um, there's really three key things. It's, it's obviously we want to continue to um, increase participation in our academy competitions, both cup and league. The goal is that by the end of that three years, we have subdivisions going coast to coast, um, and eventually each subdivision slowly shrinks in size as we add numbers, which again limits travel demand and cost, um, and, and also increases the likelihood that more players collectively become part of the platform um, in different communities. Um, we obviously want to continue behind the scenes. We spend an enormous amount of time just consulting our clubs, working with them to establish their own unique youth development strategy based on their own unique market, working with their local clubs, supporting their grassroots youth community, providing coaching education, and ultimately creating that pathway for 
for the player to the pro to the pro level. Um, and then I think one, one of the most important ones, more than just how big does our youth league become? Because again, our goal is not to have as many teams. Like yes, we need we need as many teams as possible in the youth league, but that's not really the measuring stick. The measuring stick is how many kids are actually moving through. You know, it doesn't matter every year who really wins the USL Academy League. I guess mm-hmm. we're going to do that because we need to teach kids how to compete at a young age. But it's about how many kids are actually moving through and matriculating from youth to academy to pro. And you've seen that was a huge, huge step that MLS took in the past few years, leveraging their MLS2 teams in USL to not just be a, a reserve team, but to be a platform to bring youth players through. Look at Sporting KC. Um, Seattle, and, and, and there's one other club I'm... I can't think of right now that but had literally like 50 to 70% of their rosters last year being U21 players in USL. That's, that's showing that these clubs believe in giving those young players opportunities. And I think that's the next phase we want to, we want to see independent USL clubs take over time. Yeah. And we understand. And this is the other thing is we're, we're allowing our clubs to define that. So the last thing I'll say is there's one of those standards in our, in our minimum standards. The first thing is we ask our club to, to establish their identity. What's their culture how are they going to vertically integrate their programs? And what is their philosophy on player development? And if the pro club right now is, isn't, is, wants to focus more on winning on the weekends, that's fine. We have a lot of clubs that really believe in wanting to um, become a platform for young players to develop and, and move on. So uh, that's what I'm most excited about, frankly, is to see in the next few years, where's Leo Torres? Where's Francis Jacobs? Um, is there, like Jake said in his interview, is the next Christian Pulisic going to come from a USL community and make it because at a young age they got to play for their hometown club. And that ended up being the platform that got them to the Champions League someday. Or the World Cup. Like that's that's what really excites us, I think. Mm-hmm. I love it. You've mentioned so many times today about moving from the bottom to the top, from from absolute academy player to absolute pro moving up all the way maybe as high as christian pulisic that'd be amazing and very cool and you know the usl is already there they're already putting out players um from the pro level moving on to other other teams around the world it's amazing and, and so hopefully we'll see more of that you mentioned 2023 you know in my dreams we have this fully going we got solidarity payment and we got pro rel in the usl what do you think <laughs> Hey, Jake, Jake keeps mentioning it, so never say never. Exactly. I, I would personally love it as a, as a football fan. Um, so we, we will see, and I think that's only going to, again, help grow our game in, in a new, really, really meaningful way. Um, I can tell you, once we establish enough of a footprint in Academy League, we will be instituting promotion relegation there. So maybe that would be the first step. Oh, so cool. <laughs> I like that, too. That's a good one to finish on. Liam O'Connell, he is the Senior Director of Youth Development in the USL. Thanks for joining me today, man. Have a good one, and good luck with all this. Thanks so much, Phil. Thanks so much, Phil. Take care.